This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project. I'm Ron Steslow. Welcome back to our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape in this country. As usual, we have an amazing panel today. I'm joined by former political director of the California Republican Party, Mike Madrid. It's great to have you back, Mike, as always. So excited to be with you guys today. Political strategist and crisis communications consultant, Susan Del Percio. Good morning, Susan. Good morning. Great to be with you on this last day of 2020. (laughs) And former chair of the New Hampshire Republican Party, Jennifer Horn. Jennifer, thanks for making the time today. Happy New Year to everybody. I'm so excited to (laughs) finally be embracing a new year. On today's episode, we're going to discuss the lawsuit filed against Mike Pence by a Republican congressman from Texas, a U.S. senator from Missouri who announced he'll challenge the certification of electoral college votes next week. We'll touch on the Georgia runoff elections and end with our New Year's resolutions for the United States in 2021. So let's dig in. On Sunday, Texas Congressman Louie Gomer, along with Arizona's 11 Republican electors, filed a lawsuit against Mike Pence in what The Hill called a far-fetched bid that appeared aimed at overturning President-elect Joe Biden's election win. Now, the 11 Republican electors from Arizona met and unofficially cast their ballots for Donald Trump, despite Donald Trump losing the state. The lawsuit challenges an old law from 1887 called the Electoral Count Act, which provided for the limited role of the vice president during a joint session of Congress when the electoral votes are counted. The lawsuit claims that, quote, under the 12th Amendment, defendant Pence alone has the exclusive authority and sole discretion to permit the counting of votes for any state and that if there are competing slates of electors, that the vice president could choose which slate to count or to count none of them at all. In court filings that became public on Tuesday, Gomer's attorney revealed that the plaintiffs had attempted to have Pence sign on to the plan, but he refused. And CNN legal analyst Ellie Honig has called the lawsuit ridiculous, and even the editorial board of the National Review called the lawsuits preposterous. Honig also pointed out that by this logic, Joe Biden could have installed Hillary Clinton as president in 2017, or that Dan Quayle could have declared George H.W. Bush the winner in the 1992 election. So, Susan, let's start with you here. It doesn't look like there's much hope at all for a victory for Gomer or for the Arizona Republicans in court. So what type of political upside do you think they saw? I mean, what motivation do you think there is to file this suit? The motivation is, is they want to be in the president's good graces. They're just looking to kiss up to President Trump. It's that easy. Plus, there's like this stunt um, atmosphere out there right now with a bunch of crazy lawsuits. So the president probably loves his attention. He loves having a different conversation out there than that fact that Biden will be inaugurated on January 20th. And this is just showmanship and stunts and, frankly, a whole bunch of nonsense that we barely should give the airtime to. So, Mike, one of the things you've talked about on the podcast, as has Jennifer, is that you still believe in conservative principles. Can you talk about the disconnect between claiming to be conservative and an attempt to, I mean, essentially make a single person responsible for choosing the president of the United States? Sure. I mean, look, ultimately, what we're witnessing play out here is, sorry, Susan, but it's Trumpism, for lack of a better term, (laughs) um, really being... We've got a lot of work to do around that word. Yeah. It's been characteristic of um, 
the loser syndrome, right? It's, it's, it's developing a martyr complex around losing. And there's a certain righteousness that sets into this small shrinking group. It's not that small, actually. It's getting smaller, right? This going out with a whimper as opposed to a bang here shows this degenerating, devolving kind of core constituency that has, has followed this cult of, of Donald Trump, um, devolving to a, a place where, where you, expressed even more continued fealty to a loser right and it's not it's mm-hmm. not particular to this one time not only in american history but in, in really in, in human history where the, the 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 cult of the loser really begins to take on a life of its own the good news is i think what is happening is these stunts are starting to really clearly uh illustrate how peculiar this is to a growing segment of even the Republican base. Now, it's not huge and it's not a growing sentiment, but this is really, I believe, going to start to collapse in a more meaningful way after um, the next few weeks of 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 ridiculousness and circus-like atmosphere. It's becoming so far-fetched and so outside the mainstream that even the most loyal Republicans are going to start saying, okay, wait a second, this is just absurdity. And in this theater of the absurd, what will happen is one, two, three, four percent of Republicans that will continually peel off and say, okay, let's accept the fact that Joe Biden is the president and move on. Um, you are, we are, what we are watching politically anyway is the inability uh, and the lack of desire, candidly, of the Republican Party as it currently exists to expand and reconnoiter and reconfigure itself to become a national party and a national force once again. It is devolving again into this decades-long strategy of finding um, fewer and fewer electoral states that are very monolithic and trying to lock into these areas. And in many ways, it's, it's very symptomatic of what we saw in California 25, 30 years ago, where the Republican Party's lack of ability and lack of desire to evolve and starts just speaking to more and more people as opposed to continually placating a shrinking base makes a marginal, uh, intense, um, but very, very limited uh, political entity and political organization that continually reinforces itself based off of a shrinking echo chamber. Yeah. And so what that means to your question specifically is that conservatism increasingly has less of a voice on our national stage. The Republican Party, as we have been saying for the better part of a year now, is not the party of conservatism. It has taken on this populist uh, element, which um, is showing fewer and fewer um, examples of its ability to acknowledge reality, and that's not going to change. The good part is, I think, for the country and for our democracy and for institutions, is if history is any guide, recent history anyway, in states like California, again, where we've seen this play out, it will continue to wane and weaken as a competitive force, uh, the Republican Party, I mean. The, the, the bad news is there is an enormous vacuum where traditionally conservative ideals and principles that I think many of us engaged in the Republican Party did decades ago and, and originally brought us into the fold, um, there's no space for it. There's no, there's, no, there's no room for it at this moment in time. Now, politics abhors a vacuum, so I don't believe that that's going to last a very long time. But it's for the foreseeable future. Um, I think it's going to continue. You see that with 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 Josh Hawley, for example, and you see it with this push for Mike Pence to be uh, to demonstrate fealty as the overriding characteristic, which makes you a true Republican. And if you do stand on conservative principles, if you do oppose authoritarianism, if you do stand up and march down the field and say, "Hey, this is nonsense. This is absurdity," and frankly, it's dangerous. You become ostracized. But I think as we've all learned, uh, I don't think we want to be part of this club that wouldn't have us anyway. Yeah. So, Jennifer, I want to ask you, I have a follow-up question for Mike, and, and you're, I'm sure you, you have thoughts on this too, but this this word conservative, how much of this do you think is owed? Mike, how much of everything that you just described is owed to the fact that so many rank-and-file Republicans maybe don't really understand what that word means? Because they think that they are true conservatives if they're, if they're fighting for Donald Trump tooth and nail. That's, that's what they have sort of hijacked that word to mean now. Yeah, this has been one of the more frustrating elements of kind of the, this this time in American political history 
is there is such a, a divergence, there is such a contrast between what is conservatism and what is republicanism, mm-hmm. um, but it is so intertwined in the minds of the average voter that the belief in the idea that somehow conservatism means republicanism and that these people that are acting against the Constitution and for uh, authoritarianism uh, and against basic principles like self-governance and representative democracy and support for constitutionalism that uh, we have to recognize if we're going to get past this and through this, and we will, that party loyalty is a far greater factor than our underlying ideology. And as we've talked about through the course of this year, I think that's really a function of two social phenomenon. One, of course, is this yawning, widening gap between the haves and the have-nots and demographic change. And when you, you know, one of these, this, this, this economic divide is a once in a century phenomenon. We've seen it probably two or three times in the course of American history. We've seen it, of course, throughout human history. But, but we have never as a country experienced the demographic change combined with that. And you throw both of these into the Petri dish and you have a very explosive social situation where a normal lower and middle class coalition, which has always driven both parties to the center, cannot be cohesive. And so what happens in that environment is people begin to articulate and define their political opinions on what they are against as much as what they are for. So what we saw was a lot of voters and continue to see this is people saying, I'm against socialism. I'm against defunding the police. I'm against the extremism, the Democratic Party. And so as a default, I'll use that either as an excuse or a reality to support the Republican Party. The truth is it's both. It's both Voters, Republicans specifically, are motivated um, by what they're against and what they see as a changing America that they don't like, uh, a belief that somehow the, the institutions in this country have failed them anyway. So who cares about the Constitution? Who cares about democracy? Who cares about representative government? Because if it's not going to lead to a better future, as it's clearly not in their minds, they're not going to support it anyway. And so in an environment where you feel threatened, when your 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 core personal identity feels threatened and you believe America has fundamentally changed anyway, you get rid of those principles that you believed in. It's it's incredible how how malleable, how completely flexible the underlying principles of the Republican Party that have been defined by at least since at least the end of the Second World War, but but likely yeah. going back to Lincoln, really were not that deeply embedded in the American psyche, at least with Republicans. And if they were, perhaps more importantly, uh, it signs it's a signal of an even greater social change, which is America doesn't work anymore for me. Mm-hmm. So let's just let's just support uh, an ideologue. Let's support a dictator. Let's support an authoritarian who will at least look out for my own tribal interests and how how deeply fundamentally un-American in its most basic sense is yes. is striking. Yes. So Jennifer. First of all, I want to give you plenty of space to to respond to everything Mike just said because I saw you nodding. But also, you know, we've talked a lot about how the Trump lawsuits were aimed at disenfranchising voters, and I'd love to hear from your perspective how American people should be thinking about this latest attempt to disenfranchise over 80 million voters. But I think before we get to that, you know, the last time you were on the podcast, we talked about how you have just formally left the Republican Party, probably for a lot of the same reasons that Mike just articulated. So I, w- I would love for to hear your perspective first before we get back to that question. I'm going to even go a step further and, yes. and respond to Susan really quickly. <laughs> she talked about, you know, why, what you asked her, why is he doing yeah. this? Why are they, why, you know, this Lily Gomer and they're, they, the most current lawsuit. The idea that they're suing the president, the vice president, still is all, you know, wonky in my head. Like, I don't even get what they're thinking when they do that. But it's not just because they want to be in Donald Trump's good graces. (laughs) They're doing this out of fear. They don't want to have to confront a pro-Donald Trump primary in two years. They're doing everything they can to make it clear, not just to Donald Trump, but to all of his acolytes, to his most ardent supporters in the Republican Party's primary base, that we are with Donald Trump enough that you don't need to challenge us on the ballot in a primary two years from now. Like that's their fear is losing power. 
So that's number one. Number two, talking about conservatism, um, you know, think about, you know, what is the root of the word to conserve? The idea behind conservatism politically at its core is to conserve the constitution, to be, you know, to, to be a voice and to, uh, to have principles and develop policies in the idea that they are rooted in the constitution to conserve the the root uh, the base the foundation of our country um and this latest attempt you know this idea of um trying to bring something to court to force the vice president of the united states to issue an outcome that is completely opposed to the constitution is one insane, two anti-American, and three has nothing to do with conservatism. I mean, and they they are asking, and this is what infuriated me with the Texas lawsuit. They are asking the courts to help them effectuate a coup. That's what this is. They want to overturn the legitimate results of a legitimate election. They want to overturn democracy in America. So, and and the Hill had it right. This is a ridiculous attempt. It's not going to go anywhere. Uh, Mike Pence is not a hero. He never will be. But the good news is um, he he is not going to buy into this. I, I don't I don't have any genuine concern that Mike Pence is going to do the wrong thing on January 6th. You're right that the only reason that politicians like this would do something that is so hopeless and desperate and obviously on its face ridiculous and has no hope of succeeding anti-American anti-American don't forget that of course is for the political self-interest down the road right to be able to say in a campaign ad I stuck up for Donald Trump when right exactly it's completely about power because they have nothing to gain from it other than that. Everything that the Republican Party has done since Donald Trump entered office has been about power, and it's become progressively more um, outrageous uh, and more anti-constitutional, more anti-American with each day that has passed uh, in this in this presidency, and it has completely exploded beyond anything I ever imagined they would have, frankly, the balls to attempt, excuse my language, post-election. And we talked about this Mm -hmm. the last time you and I were on the podcast together. What they have done post-election it's it's like out of a it's out of a novel it's out of a movie it you have you know the the senate yeah. majority leader literally engaged in you know language that's about overturning democracy the the entire party the the party chairwoman the the leaders in in the house and the senate 126 republican members of the house now these fools trying to do this stupid thing with the mike pence i mean it's not ending it, it and well i know we'll talk in a minute about senator josh Hawley. it's uh, it like my brain is almost exploding over how crazy and destructive this really is Donald Trump lost when he lost that Saturday after the election, when every credible organization in the country declared and acknowledged that Joe Biden was the president-elect of the United States. That was the Republican Party's moment. That was their chance to regain a tiny little bit of credibility and to start building a foundation that they could you know, grow and, and rebuild from going forward. That was their moment. And they made a conscious, strategic, anti-American decision to go in the opposite direction. And it is clear that they are trying to build the future of their party on the very principles that Abraham Lincoln fought to defeat. I agree it's power for a lot of these Republicans, but I think it all initiates out of fear. The biggest, the the why this happened, ha, in part how we got there, who I blame, Mitch McConnell and Paul yeah. Ryan. Because from the get-go, they were so scared because they did not understand how it was possible that Donald Trump got elected with the enthusiasm that he created within the Republican Party. And they didn't understand it. And they let him go where all he really did need is a punch in the nose in the first six months. And he probably would have stepped back because Donald Trump was clueless on how to govern. But they didn't because they managed out of fear. 
And that is what continues to have every, every year, every month, whatever it is that we hear someone talking about Donald Trump and why are Republicans going along with it? It's fear. Now we'll get to Holly in a minute. And I think there he's not doing it out of fear. He's doing it out of ambition, looking towards 2024. But to bring it kind of all together in that conversation of conservatism, I think it touches on Jennifer's point, but also on Mike's point, because what does it mean and, and where is it going with the Republican Party? I think it's become a very social issue. What Donald Trump capitalized on was the social cultural issues yes. of what people think is conservatism, not the, the, the conserve, as Jennifer says, portion of conservatism. Right. They got, you know, he, he focused on abortion. He focused on immigration. He focused on a very them versus us, a very cultural conservative argument. He would say, I, I disagree with it, but, and that left a lot of people kind of confused, if you will, as to, yes, that there's, he's speaking to me, even though I find him abhorrent. So when we start looking at this, you know, we have to look at what that basically Republicans are a bunch of feckless leaders and scared of their own shadow because they just didn't know what to do with Donald Trump. But going forward, we have to look at what do these values that we want to bring back to the party? What are they? And how do we get through what people have as a preconceived idea now of conservatism, right, of republicanism. Right, right, exactly. And I think we'll be talking a lot about that uh, on the podcast in the weeks and months to come. Speaking of feckless leaders, let's turn to the Senate. <laughs> on Wednesday, Josh Hawley announced that he'll object next week when Congress meets to certify the Electoral College vote. Hawley said, at the very least... Congress should investigate allegations of voter fraud and adopt measures to secure the integrity of our elections. Now, it's important to note here that now former Attorney General Bill Barr said there was no evidence of widespread voter fraud. Bill Barr said that. Holly did tell reporters that he has not decided if he will only challenge the electoral votes from Pennsylvania or in a series of swing states. And before we dive in, I do want to remind our listeners that a member of both the House and Senate would need to challenge a state's electoral votes before both chambers would even consider it. And both the Senate and the Democratic-controlled House would need to agree to the challenge before the votes are thrown out, just to alleviate any, uh, any alarm here before we start this conversation. So, Susan, what is the play here? Because there's really no chance of either chamber voting to throw out a state's electoral vote. So why is Holly going to challenge the vote? Well, and especially Nancy Pelosi, I, I, I don't think that the Democrat-controlled House will look to get rid of um, Joe Biden's electoral votes. So um, it is a stunt. It is something that I find very dangerous, though, because when, for the last couple of weeks, we've been hearing about the noise in the House of hearing people step up. And then there was a question of Mitch McConnell going to his senators, the Republican senators, and saying, do not do this. Like, this is the last thing we mm -hmm. need right now. Pleading now, with them. Yeah, pleading yeah. with him. Exactly yeah. right. And a few people like, you know, Ron Johnson, who I'm just convinced someone dropped on his head multiple times recently. <laughs> um, <laughs> seriously, there's just no other explaining it. But there was him and, and, and they basically said, like, don't do it. He kind of backed down, I think. But now that Holly has done it, it goes into something else we've talked a lot about on this podcast is creating a very dangerous environment. Because now if he's one, it opens the door to another and perhaps as many as three or four of these irresponsible senators could get on board. And I think at that point, you have to start worrying that it gets more of the crowd outside yeah. of the Capitol yeah. getting all riled up. Clearly, that it will not have an effect. We know that this stunt is just that. But what it starts to stir up outside, again, going to that cultural, that, 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 you know, if we're going through that cultural divide and that strong social change yeah. right now, yeah. there's going to be a lot of people riled up. And while I think it's the, those Trump supporters who will be looking to act out and create a really big problem, I don't think you're going to see people who on the Democratic side stay home and, and not counter peacefully with a rally. But 
that we know can spark a lot of things. But as far as what Holly did, he a lot of people are saying he was just looking towards 2024, that he now has the leap in there to go in. I think that's a big miscalculation because I think that right now, looking like Trump's guy today may look good, but in 2022, it's not going to look so good. Yeah. I mean, even if it is a stunt, leadership still matters. And these people are seen as leaders and their and their example can incite things that maybe they don't intend or they don't they they just don't care about. Mike, we talked a couple of weeks ago about Mitch McConnell essentially begging Republican senators not to challenge the vote, which Susan just talked about, um, because it'll require all of them to take an up or down vote. What could be the potential blowback for these senators? Well, again, it's important to understand that in a few weeks, Mitch McConnell, again, becomes the most powerful Republican in Washington. Mm-hmm. And his job, of course, as the leader in the Senate, Republican leader in the Senate, is to uh, keep uh, his caucus at its current size or work to expand it. So he's concerned about the politics, rightfully so. This is, gonna, this is not going to look good, especially with so many Republican senators uh, needing to defend contentious seats coming up in the midterm elections. And this becomes the first salvo, the opening salvo. It also makes his job in terms of governance extremely difficult when he is even more limited in his wiggle room um, to kind of work towards successes and legislative accomplishments to protect those same co- uh, caucus members going forward. So he's, he's, he's in a little bit of a pickle. Now, McConnell's not afraid of that situation, of course, but he is going to, I think, rightfully express the, the right political roadmap, which is not where Holly and other potential presidential contenders are going to be looking to be at. This is, look, this at its crassest, basest form is about placating the base. It's at least saying, I carried the banner all the way to the end. You can trust me as a Republican and quote unquote conservative, whatever that means to them now, that I am that guy. I will pick up the flag on the battlefield and I will run down, you know, march down to the field into, into, a, you know, a, a flurry of, of hot lead flying at me. Like I'm that, I'm your guy, right? I'm, I should be the one who gets your votes in this primary coming up. Um, but, and this is very important, uh, and I think it's, it's per- pertinent to the McConnell question too. Susan hit it right on the head. This is all fear-based. It, it's all fear-based. It's a fear of a changing America. It's a fear of an economy slipping away from me from the base. It's a fear that those people are taking over this country. It's why conspiracy theory um, is becoming as commonplace as evidence. In fact, when you're scared, you tend to not make the best decisions. And what you see is the politicians, and, and unfortunately, the politicians are acting rational in an irrational system. They're playing to this. We, we would hope that there would be more leadership. We have all been hoping that there would be more leadership over the past few years, but we have learned and need to commit to the idea that we're not going to get that from the Republican caucus, okay, unless it's in their own interest, and only very rarely has it been in their interest. So they will be stoking the flames of fear. For interest. That's what Gomert's doing. That's what Hawley's doing. That's what all of these Republican politicians will be doing is throwing gas on the fear and saying, I can throw more gas on this as anybody else. And it's why it's getting more and more extreme. It's getting hotter and hotter. But like I said, demographically, it is also shrinking as an important thing to understand. I think um, just like any major traumatic event in the history of this country, once the event comes to a close, and I do believe that Donald Trump will be leaving on January 20th, for the next two, four years, it's not going anywhere. Now, beyond that, uh, and we'll see what happens in the presidential primary in four years, it's a long time from now, I do believe that that, that flame, that conflagration, will, will begin to simmer down into a low-burning flame that will probably last for many, many, many years, but it will increasingly be ostracized and mitigated as a, as a national force. It will become a very regional, highly specific, dampening, devolving movement in this country as a new, quote-unquote, new majority emerges to take the place to rightfully, hopefully, protect, preserve, and and promote a healthy democratic system. I, I, let, me, let me wrap up on, on one quick thing here. Yeah. I'm, hope, I'm very hopeful that Americans will not forget how close we came in 2020 to losing all of this. Yeah. The fact that we're watching the president basically incite seditious acts and activity, promote violence, and undermine the very underpinnings of the Constitution as a lame duck president makes me nervous to think of what would have happened had he won at this moment in time. He would have taken this as a mandate to completely undermine our institutions, and he would have had a complicit Republican Party in the Senate at least doing it and a wide energized base to move forward on this. And I just, 
you know, I, I think history will record this appropriately and accurately, but for, for history and for history's sake, I think it's important that we continue to remind people and speak out so that history does not forget how close we came to catastrophe yeah, here. Yeah. So, Jennifer, uh, I, first of all, I would love to hear you respond to what Mike just said. And, and, and he said something that I think raises a question for our listeners, which is these representatives are like Mike, you said they're beholden to the base, right? And at the same time, they're fanning those flames. And Trump has fanned those flames all year long for the last for his entire tenure. Um, how how do you parse the difference between representing a constituency and being beholden to a fanatic base? Well, this is what's happening to the party system in general. That's become such a problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, you go to Washington, you're supposed to be a voice for the people who sent you, a voice for your district, your state, depending on what role you have. And the idea is once you get there, you're supposed to be a voice for the entire district, for the entire mm-hmm. state, not just for those people who cast a ballot with your name on it, you know, for the whole state of New Hampshire, for the entire state of Mississippi. For um, You're supposed to be advocating for good policy that, um, you know, advances a, a, the constitutional democracy that we live in and somehow serves, you know, the, the people at, um, at the same time. That's not what happens anymore at all to any degree frankly, on either side, most of the time, you know, it becomes about holding on to the power and that's rooted in the party that, and so you get to Washington and now you're, you're, you're divided. You're being pulled now between what is the best thing for the people? What is the best thing for the Republican party? What is the best thing um, to keep Mitch McConnell happy with me? What is the best thing to keep the crazy, you know, nut in the white house from tweeting something, you know, mean and divisive at me. And, um, and, and we've just lost this whole idea. Yeah. Of what yeah. what your job is supposed to be when you get elected to represent the people, um, and and that and and again, you know, I, it, the party system is just just destroying, um, you know. And and I'm not saying we shouldn't have parties, and you know, I'm, it's broken. The party system is broken. Yeah, but and what you're saying is the the incentive structures that are in place right now require active resistance once you get into office against the interests of your party if you're ever going to do any good. You almost right. have to go in willing to lose the next election because... Yeah, go ahead, Susan. Uh, there's just one thing I'd like to just jump, jump in there. And let's yeah. not forget, Washington has become a place where you actually, when you go to, to represent your constituency... You're not bringing stuff back like you used to. Right. Being a member of Congress used to meant you get a certain amount of allotments you could get yep. bring back for your district. You could really make it tangible. Mm-hmm. Right now, for the last at least eight years, if not longer, Congress has been a reactive force. So they haven't been able to pass legislation. They haven't done anything to show that they have a record. So the only option left is, is to play to those issues that they can go to, to a base voter. And that, and that's the biggest problem because when you say you will go against an incumbent, what have you done? Yeah. They don't have anything to really say it. That is a great point. And it goes to what all three of us, I think, have been saying here that the Republican Party has reached a point where the only thing that the senators and congressmen have to offer, the only product that they have to offer their voters is the more and more outrageous support of Donald Trump. You know, the proof, the, I signed on to this, um, to this lawsuit. I, here's this tweet that I sent out. Here's this statement that I made. It's like the only thing these guys have to offer Republican voters anymore is that I stayed with Trump right till the bitter, you know, unconstitutional anti-American end. Um, and, and, and that's kind of what I meant, I guess, when I went, when I suggested earlier that, um, uh, the Republican party is building their future on the most destructive thing that we have experienced as a country in my lifetime. 
it makes no sense to me at all. It, 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 I, 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 I mean, it makes sense to me, I guess, but it, it goes against everything that I believed conservatism was about, that I believe the Republican Party stood for, um, and that I believe is right and good for the future of our country. Um, Mike is absolutely right when he talks about fear, the fear-based, um, yeah. you know, the, the, the motivation from fear. Uh, and we've all used that word this morning already. Um, and, and I think that we have to be honest about what some of that fear is. I think that when it comes to these specific human beings who are in Congress right now, it's a fear of losing power. And, and, and it is um, terribly damaging to the country when the need to grasp power becomes so deep and so, um, so you know, overwhelming that this is the direction they're willing to go to hold on to it. But there's a, where does it come from? Why are they in fear of losing their power? It's because of the attitudes and the actions and the beliefs that are rooted in the base that are also rooted in fear. You know, what, what do these people fear? They're, that Mike is being um, polite and political when he says they fear the changing demographics. Those changing demographics have to do with skin color. It has to do with background. It has to do with um, where they're from and how they speak and what they sound like and um, and how much money people make and you know this this you know this economic chasm. It's all these different things. That's where the fear is is rooted. That is that has been um, that has been fueling what Donald Trump has been doing for the last four years, which I come back to the same conclusion every time, which the Republican Party has now embraced. So before we turn to our last segment where we're going to discuss New Year's resolutions for America, I just want to do a quick check-in on Georgia. You know, Speaking of where we go from here and what the balance of power is going to be, and everybody, all eyes are on Georgia right now. Everyone understands how important this is, and it's going to determine whether Mitch McConnell is the Senate Majority Leader or the Senate Minority Leader. And um, you know, as of right now, we've got about two and a half million ballots cast. It looks like it looks like early voting is going to be roughly a million votes fewer than the general election, and largely Democrats are going to benefit. But still, both Republican senators are favored to win. Um, Susan, how are you thinking about? the outcome of the Georgia elections and and what should we be watching for? Well, we talked a lot about fear, and I think there is no one more scared about how this turns out than Mitch McConnell, because it is all on the line for him. If they don't win both of those seats, it is game over. They cannot, Mitch McConnell will not have his power, his control, and he knows it. As far as what we're seeing on the ground, if the amount of mail and ads are any indication, a friend of mine got nine pieces of mail in one day, in one day out of his (laughs) mailbox. So people are are geared up. There's a lot. And that just goes again to show the fear. There is a lot of money being spent and there's a lot on the line. And while we're not seeing presidential numbers on turnout, we are seeing very high numbers on early voting. And that does benefit the Democrats. But let's not forget, it's still Georgia. And both of the Democrats that are running both uh, got a lot fewer votes than Joe Biden did. Right. And also by 80,000. Um, and then the, the three ways a little more complicated. But it. it they are. This is not on their side. This is not trending Democrat. It will be a huge victory, though, and one that Mitch McConnell is very scared of. Jennifer, did you want to add anything? There were some numbers out before Christmas on on the special election showed at at that point that there were over. I think they said over um, over sixty thousand people had voted had participated in early voted voting who had not voted in the presidential election at all, who had not participated in the uh, general election. That's kind of seen as um, as a, a benefit to the Democratic candidates in all in this in this in these runoffs as well. And what we've seen, how we have seen the president himself conduct himself since the election, um, you know, is going to ha- is going to have some influence 
over all of this? You know, will there be Republicans who just stay home? Will there will there be Republicans who decide to cross the line and and say we've got to you know we've got to do something? You know, maybe that's the that's the you know that was kind of the line that they just couldn't cross, and now they're saying okay, this these guys have to go. So there's a lot of things that have unfolded since um, the beginning of November that could really push help to push these Democratic candidates. Um, but to Susan's point, and as Mike has reminded us throughout you know the last eight six or eight weeks. Um, it, it, it's Georgia. It's still Georgia. It's, it's, it's Georgia, it's, it's, and it's a runoff in Georgia. And exactly. we know that runoffs have were were historically designed to keep minority groups from voting, to keep black people exactly. from voting. That's, exactly, that, that's the bottom line. And, 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 and exactly, and and have successfully done so for a very long time. Yep. Exactly. Um, so, like, we are are we hopeful? Yes. Has the Lincoln Project done everything they can? Yes. Have a, a whole lot of other groups down there that are very active and very busy, uh, you know, been engaged. Yes, like everybody's doing everything they can do. Um, but in the end, it's Georgia. So at at this stage of the game, like we we just we we pray and we cross our fingers and and we hope that you know this coordinated effort among all these different groups will make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, January sixth is the day. We'll know that, and then. we will be talking about this next week. Can, can I say let me say one quick thing about this? Yeah, though? please, Mike. It's really challenging, especially in a special election environment, to make too too much predictions or prognostications about what's happening. But I will say this: if the Democrats win, and and I think it's probably advantage to the Republicans here because of the dynamics that were just discussed. But if the Democrats win, I can't overstate how significant a blow that will be in terms of a political realignment, which we have been talking about for some time, not just in the South but nationally. If two Democrats win a special election in the Trump era, Georgia not only becomes, you know, it, it, it will it will be a swing state for some time as it moves towards a more blue column, but the setback and what it will do to the Republican Party cannot be overstated. It will be like Pickett's charge at Gettysburg. It will blow a mm-hmm. hole in the major offensive that the Republicans have, and I think it will scatter the army in a way that I think it will probably be very, very difficult to recover from. Most of us on the panel and our listeners spent the last year working to defeat Donald Trump. But in the last couple of months, we've talked a lot about the ongoing social and cultural problems that allowed Trump to get elected in the first place. And defeating Trump was really just step one in this process of creating a politics that reflects our values. So instead of looking at the stories that we're watching next week, I want to end today by talking about the New Year's resolutions that we have for America going into 2021. Susan, why don't we start with you? My resolution is that we, as Americans, all decide to wear a mask that we put each other ahead of any political party, anything that's happened in the past, and look forward to keeping each other safe. We will have a vaccination, but it'll be four months or so until most of the country gets vaccinated. And we have seen nearly 350,000 people die. They predict we are about to hit the worst time. So my my resolution for America is that we become an us again, a we again, and that we collectively get together to keep each other safe, healthy, and then we can move on from there. Here, here. I want to sign on to yours, Susan. That was that was fantastic. Jennifer, how about you? Well, I'm, I will assume that we are all going We're to sign all, yeah, on absolutely. to each other's here because <laughs> Susan, uh, I would have started with exactly the same thing, that we will all become equally invested in each other's health and safety and um, you know participate in some of the common sense uh, behavior that we need to get past all this. Then if I was going to say, you know, what would the next one be? It would be then that um, I, I hope that as a country that we will be able to engage in a really respectful and open manner in the conversations that are necessary to start moving past the um, most damaging 
influences of the Trump presidency. And at the top of that list would be the uh, the, the racial divide, the racial um, at- the attacks on racial equity that we have seen um, under this president, and and that we can all engage in that, that we can set aside this this us against them, that we can or at least make progress toward setting that aside, um, that we can be honest with ourselves, that we can you know talk about what might cause these demographic shifts in a really personal um, and honest and open way um, and and try to get back to the idea. I mean, we've never been perfect as a country in this area, <clears throat> but we've always had leadership and always had, I believe, the majority of our country wanting to make forward progress in it. Um, and, and I think that that only happens um, when we are all able to um, speak from our hearts and uh, do so and, and do so in a way where we don't feel like we're going to be attacked for doing so. Um, and, and, you know, let's start talking honestly again about the fact that there are communities, you know, in our country um, who are not living the American dream, who don't have access to the American dream. Um, and, and I just, you know, that's, that's maybe not as, as, um, as concise or as, you know, clearly stated as Susan was with her coronavirus. But um, we, we, ha- we, are, we are a broken, like I think there are too many people in our country right now whose hearts are broken because of the way this president used race and other differences to divide and hurt us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would like to see that heal or at least begin to heal. Really well said. Mike, how about you? So 25 years ago, when I was wrapping up my academic work at Georgetown <laughs> University, I was you know, working and focused on the idea that um, looking at the math and the demography and recognizing that America was going to change in a very unique way over the course of my lifetime. And one of the reasons I got into politics is because I believed that this country and the American experiment could only work if we were able to ingratiate a non-white America into this American idea and really challenge the beliefs that our country was founded on in a positive way to say, can America, can democracy be inclusive in a genuine way? It's, all, we've, it's been a lot of platitudes and a lot of, lot of you know, mythical discussion points to this point. For the past 250 years, you know, we fought a great civil war. We went through Reconstruction and Jim Crow laws and segregation in a fight to kind of become a more perfect union. But as we become more diverse and as America becomes less black and white, but you know a lot more gray or brown areas in between, we are challenging the very notion of what Americanness is. And 2020 was an inflection point. It was an inflection point where uh, for the past 25 years, I've been looking prospectively at what it was going to mean. The next 25 years of my career will be focused on working towards a more inclusive and more representative democracy, because only in that way can democracy work. We have to be honest with the, the idea that democracy has not worked for, for people of color in this country for 250 years. It hasn't. It has not. And that's okay. That, that's not a slap on America. That doesn't mean we're not a, you mean we're this horrible country. It means that we have more work to do. And America is only America as long as it believes it still has work to do. It's, it's the process of unfolding. That's what America is. That's the American idea. That's the American experiment is how do we bring more people into the governance process to give more people a seat at a table that they helped to build. And so I'm excited again at, at this point in my career and, and working forward. I, I don't believe that we can just stamp out Trumpism or, or whatever the best word is, Susan, on, on, on this rising populist. <laughs> We're going to work on threat. that. <laughs> yeah. And declare victory and say that's what it is. The, the way to make this better, the way to prevent this from happening again is to make sure that when we talk about democracy, we are talking about inclusion and representative governments, truly in the truest sense, because only then can democracy work or at least move us forward on the path to realizing what the promise was of our founding 250 years ago. It's not, it wasn't ideal, obviously. It was not perfect when it was founded. It's not perfect now. And it may not be in 200 years, 250 more years, but as long as we're making progress we are realizing the promise of what our founding meant. 
And that, I think, step by step, is is really the necessary um, next course of action for us, uh, I think, to take as Americans as we move into a new phase. I, I genuinely believe that perhaps for the first time in this country's history, 2020 marks a country deeply divided on half of us who believe America is over and it's done and making America great you know, is a last gasp at holding on to something that really never was for everybody and an emerging America that is pushing to realize the hope and the aspiration of what the founding originally meant. And and that's what I will be working on going forward in 2021 and hopefully for the next 25 years of my career. I want to work here, with here. Mike. I know. I'm, I, you <laughs> I know. know. And, Me too. You will. Right. We all will. <laughs> the, um, my mom said once to me a long time ago that perfection's an unworthy goal, right? Yeah. There's no such thing. We never yeah. reach perfection. Yeah. But we've always in this country sought to achieve it. We've always been, you know, always um, been on a path looking forward, moving toward it. How do, you know, what is what the, the, the promise of America? Mm-hmm. And, and it's only been under this president that we have seen such destructive, um, conscious efforts to go to destroy it to go in a different direction so um i'm with you mike it, it going for it has to be about inclusion it has to be about uh, that's what i'm kind of you know to being honest with ourselves it hasn't worked for all americans and um we can't have a um a whites only membership uh, rule in America for success or inclusion or democracy or whatever. Um, we are a very diverse nation and that is our strength. And if we are not willing to embrace that and understand it and fight for it and as we move forward, um, then we're never going to be, uh, honestly, what the founder of our party, the founding of our, you know, our, my former party now, I guess, what it envisioned, what it was, that's what Abraham Lincoln was seeking. That's what he was fighting for. And, um, if we can't see that and, and see it as a worthy goal to, um, move toward together, then, I don't know what the future of our country looks like, but I still believe that the vast majority of Americans do want to engage um, in in the manner that Mike describes. And they also want to say goodbye to 2020 and hello and we, to 2021. Yeah, absolutely. They want to say goodbye to 2020. That's right. <laughs> can, can I say one, one quick last thing? Please do. You know, our, our constitution has been amended 27 times in our, in our 250 year history. Mm-hmm. 20 of those 20 times it has been amended to expand the franchise and broaden the table of rights to allow more inclusion. That is the arc of our country's history. That is the beauty of America. And that is, I think, where we continue. That's the lesson of 2020 as we we leave this year behind and, and move forward. If we continue along that arc, we're going to be just fine. But really, the goal of us as Americans, the obligation is to not not seek a perfect union is to seek a more perfect union yeah. and as long as we're focused yeah. on that america is going to going to do great thank you to everyone at home for listening and thanks to jennifer mike and susan for making the time on this new year's eve to have the conversation this episode was recorded when i hosted the lincoln project podcast on this feed If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.